0: Hello and welcome to the EdSurge Air podcast, a weekly look at the future of education. I'm Jeff Young, an editor here. The key to reforming schools is imagination. Think bringing the spirit of shows like the Jetsons or Star Trek to school design, throwing out all preconceptions and, and imagining what a new kind of school could look like designed for today's needs. That's the argument made in a new book, Timeless Learning. How imagination, observation, and zero based thinking are changing schools. EdSurge's CEO and co founder, Betsy Corcoran, recently sat down with two of the authors of the book to better understand their argument and ask what practical advice they have for teachers and administrators looking to transform schools. We'll have that conversation right after this.
1: This episode of the EdSurge On Air podcast is brought to you by the EdSurge Digital Learning Network. Move your institution forward faster. Join a community of instructional designers and other higher education strategic leaders in the EdSurge Digital Learning Network. Visit www.EdSurgeDLN.com to find out more. That's DLN as in Digital Learning Network. So hi, I'm Betsy Corcoran. I'm CEO and co-founder of EdSurge, and I am really happy to have two book authors here today on the Ed Surge podcast. Pam Moran and Ira Sokol are partners in crime, they like to say, or partners in book writing. Sometimes the two are similar. Uh, their new book is called Timeless Learning, How Imagination, Observation, and Zero-Based Thinking Are Changing Schools. And uh, Pam is former superintendent for the Albemarle School District in Virginia. Ira was also a former uh, chief technology officer in Virginia. And between the two of them, they've probably seen more schools, more kids, more teachers than most other people ever have a chance to do in a lifetime. So Ira and Pam, your book is about thinking practically about how children learn and what we've learned about children learning right? How, how has that changed over the years for you?
2: Well, I, th- I think that we've, we're both observers of children. And I think that's one of the things that brought us together. Um, we come from very different backgrounds and very different sort of educational experiences, uh, but we've spent a lot of time. And
1: I've got to say, you were a former police officer at one point.
2: I, I was a former New York City police officer. Um, I also have trained in sort of art and architecture, and I think one of the things that I learned early in my education career was that while those three previous careers of mine involved a lot of learning how to see, most educators' education has not included that, a real study of how you observe the world. And so one of the things we started at, right at the beginning of our work together was walking classrooms together and... Not, and walking the world together, looking at how we saw children learning both inside and outside schools.
1: So, Ira, you've talked about how you have to look at things differently when you walk through the classroom. Pam, I know because we've talked before that you actually studied as a field biologist. Tell me about how the looking from the point of view of a field biologist changes the way mm-hmm. you look at a classroom, the way educators look at sure. a classroom. And, and I think that, that you know I understood
3: that as a child, and walking with my grandfather and learning about relationships within the the, the natural environment, um, that led to me uh, studying field biology in college. And when I became an educator and started to really process the way that that education works, I realized that education is an ecosystem. We're a web. Um, we are connected, and what one person does in one room, even though it may be very isolated from other people, can have ripples all the way through the system. And so, you know, I, I really believe that, that when Ira talks about observation as being key to what we need to learn to do well, that observation is what people do to study in the ecosystem. We certainly collect data but it also has a qualitative side to it. And I think that that that's a really important part of what we do. And so you know, if you're looking at a, a classroom of children and you are focusing on that scientific model, which is about checklist of what makes this classroom efficient and effective, you may actually miss some of the nuances of the system. It could be the child in the corner who is isolating themselves and instead of wondering why or whether that's an okay thing or not, We may be saying, oh, no, that child needs to be in a seat in front of the teacher, um, focusing on the lesson, when in fact that child may be needing something very differently from the teacher. And so in a more ecological system, you're taking in a much bigger swath
1: of what's happening in a classroom and processing it. Great. Imagination. So talk a little bit about, you say this is timeless learning, and it's how imagination changes the way we think about schooling. Where does the imagination come in
2: you know I, I think one of the things that's really important in transforming schools is to say we don't have to use research-based practices and everything because if they're research-based practices it means they're old they've been done before long enough to have been studied and that's informative but it doesn't describe where we need to go. We're at this time of massive transition in in our society and in our economies uh, and it's in some ways the last transition this dramatic happened in the 1840s when the telegraph and the steamship and the railroads and and penny newspapers and all these things appeared changing the communication structure of society completely. That's when our schools were built. That's when our schools were created. Our public education system was developed in response to those needs. Now we're at a time where for the first time in human history, we've really achieved a very low cost of information Um, and students have access to all sorts of resources people never had before, but we have to imagine a future. Just because we don't know what 2050 will look like doesn't mean we can't imagine the possibilities that are created. One of the things that's always frustrated me is the view of the world that's existed in this early part of this century that seems insufficiently transformative to me. You know, I'm old enough to have grown up in, in the 60s when, you know, as funny as it seems, the fact that we were promised flying cars and living under the sea and things, these were massively imaginative views of what was possible. And in fact, so many things have been completely transformed since then because of the imagination. The education system is the one thing that's truly lagged behind in that. Mm. I think we just need a much higher level of dreaming. And Interesting.
1: Supposing. So so let me, I'm just going to push back on, on a couple points. So you said we need to dream. We need to dream about the world and use our mm-hmm. imagination yep. to imagine what the world will be like. And then you said, well, it doesn't necessarily need to be a research-based practice. Uh, that's an interestingly controversial comment at a time when... Gosh, some people are saying, wouldn't it be nice if we had some more research-based practices? So, so let's take that apart, the f- second part first, research-based practices. You don't want them?
2: I want research. I don't want to be ruled by the kinds of research that have dominated the last 50 years one of the problems i have and you know i really struggled with this in graduate school and certainly the professors at michigan state could testify to that um, is the standards of research-based practices you try to isolate a single element i don't believe that an environment ever operates along single elemental change What's funny is if you start to unpack these greatest research studies, the only significant thing you can pull out of all the research of the last 40 years that really affects student achievement is letting kids eat all day. <laughs> food and drink makes kids happier, and, and they work yeah, better. Food and
1: drink make me happy right. too. I, but surely we must have learned something else. I mean, you know, uh, the science of learning development talks about how – context around us, triggers genes, triggers uh, different interactions. Surely that counts.
2: I, th- I think brain research
1: ah, and study of research.
2: learning is different than saying, does this reading program
1: Okay, so work. what you're saying is educational research, maybe not so much, but okay. Brain right. research, we've learned something about.
2: We've learned, a tr- we know more about, you know what we know about the human brain now is a hundred times what we knew just 20 years ago.
1: So that research is okay. We should be using that research. I think
2: that's really important.
1: Okay, all right, and one other question. So you mentioned imagination, and I think that's a really relevant and and under-discussed part. And as you said, in the 1960s, lots of cool stuff, Mm. Jetsons, la-la-la-la. When we look at some of the movies, which in movies are often a way that we express our cultural imagination, we see two things right now. We see superhero movies and we see highly dystopian movies. What does that say about our vision of the future?
2: I I think we're stuck in a place where people are very afraid, which is logical. Um, There's a great deal of fear around what's coming next and, and what happens. And I always say, I, you know, I got to live in Michigan during the great crunch where, you know, a million middle-class workers lost their jobs to robots. Um, And so I've seen that kind of transformation happen and it's, (laughs) it, you know, it's horrible and it's very threatening. I think the superhero line is a logical reaction to that. People want a savior. Uh, but the problem is, the savior has to be all of us because we're not going to be able to call on the superheroes. Save ourselves. So we so
3: all scared. have to have superpowers. Right. now I would, would add, Betsy, to that focus on imagination that as a superintendent, recovering superintendent, I have to become more past tense than present at this point um, in that role. But here are some things that I think are pretty critical. Um, I had a young woman who said to me one time, you know, Ms. Moran? since we put that sound studio in the library and, you know, music construction, I don't have to leave my creativity outside of school anymore. And I kind of barred that phrase from Grace and turned it into something where I talk about that teachers and kids shouldn't have to check their creativity at the schoolhouse door. Nice. And it strikes me that for too long that mass standardization of everything, and that does come from, from quote evidence-based practices. This is how you need to kind of lockstep your work and in the worst case scenarios in our schools, it looks like cookie cutter uh, curriculum where everybody's on the same page doing the same thing at the same time uh, or on the same screen today. Um, In the the best-case scenarios, you know, teachers have a little bit more freedom to to kind of experiment. But what what I think we don't do is to recognize that teachers, in my mind, have been some of the most amazing imagineers and um, do-it-yourself exemplifying sort of the do-it-yourself culture because of the fact that when you have so many constraints on resources, Teachers can imagine how to use things very differently than um, when you don't have uh, those constraints. And so, you know, Ira talks about the the idea of how do you create a culture of contagious creativity. It's a nice phrase, a culture of... of Contagious... Contagious creativity. Right, and that happens when leaders themselves are willing to take risk and also to really embrace the idea that teachers and kids also, um, if we want them to be people who imagine and dream and create, that we have to build out the capability for people to feel comfortable and confident that they can take risks. And as a mentor of mine once said, you know, uh, mistakes by teachers and kids should not be a life sentence. And I've always, that stayed with me with the idea that we should, always see that when people take risks to try things and it fails, um, whether it's a teacher trying out a science inquiry lesson, or it could be a a kid who's trying to build something, or maybe they just screw up in school. How do we turn that into a learning experience? And to me, that is a way of imagining a very different kind of um, environment for children and teachers than one in which we constrain them so much and people are fearful of taking risk that they don't uh, take the risk to dream what's possible with kids i think that that if we really want to get to a place where we do truly have equity of opportunity equity of access and equity of a rich learning world for all students that we've got to be able to really look at some of the structures that we have and imagine what would it look like if that structure didn't exist. And that leads to the other theme of our book, observation,
1: imagination, and zero-based thinking. Which was my next question, which is exactly what is zero-based thinking?
2: Zero-based thinking is pulled from the corporate world, but it's based in the idea that in order to truly imagine a future that's different, to imagine something that's different, you have to sort of erase from your mind a whole set of...
3: It's Bell Labs.
2: It's a Bell Labs thing. You have to erase from your mind that a sort of belief in everything that you know now. And there's a famous thing that Pam often talks about. You know, In 1951, the chairman of AT&T you know, went to the Bell Labs facility and told the engineers there that the only thing you want them to work on for the next year was an imaginary project in which the phone system of the u.s had been destroyed and they had to create something new everything we have in communications now was conceived in that year star trek too yeah you know it was this amazing dramatic thing so you know they said why would you have these rotary phones that with mechanical clicks why would you have wires anymore you know what you know and what else could a phone do uh they they imagined everything the the challenge in school and we talk about this is if you've imagined if you'd never heard of a school never seen a school but you were tasked with getting kids from the age of five to the age of 18 or to 22 what would you do and it's hard to imagine we would choose to do what we have now so then the question is, goes back, cycles back to the imagination question.
3: I've seen this play out in a couple of ways in, uh, with teachers I've known as well as in uh, the, the division writ large or district writ large. Uh, I walked into a classroom at the beginning of a school year a couple, three years ago, and everything in the classroom was in the middle of the floor. All of the, all of the stuff that was on shelves, uh, everything, books, everything was piled. It looked like it was going to be a bonfire. And I looked at the teacher, and I said, Steve, what's going on here? And he said, you know, I decided to just start the year really differently, Pam. And I said, yeah, I bet so (laughs) I can see that. The kids were all around, and they were, were in groups and talking and picking things up. And I said, what are they doing? And he said, every year I go through, all year long, having kids come to me and say, where's this, where's this, where's this? And he said, I decided to start the year by putting everything in a pile and saying to the class, organize the room the way you think it will work for you. And it worked? His kids took all that stuff, they organized it, put it in the places, and I think continued to maybe evolve it over the course of the year. I was back a a couple months later, and I said to him, I said, so how did it go? He said... I'm the one now that's asking the question, where do I find the... He said, but I don't have... He said, the kids know where everything is. Nice. So think about that. What the kids did was they had an opportunity to basically do zero-based thinking by rebuilding the classroom for themselves Mm -hmm. and not having the teacher do it for them. That's a simple example A bigger example is that when we uh, started talking about building a new high school, we brought in a firm and said, we want you to do a a really deep dive look at, at the work that we're doing and at the needs that we have in terms of capacity and so forth and come back with a solution for a new high school. What they came back with was, an idea that we didn't need a new high school, even though we thought we needed a new high school, because we said we want you to do basically zero-based thinking.
1: You've got a bunch of kids, so where are you going to put them? That's right.
3: What they came back with was the idea of how do you find in your community the potential for community-based centers Mm -hmm. as one idea, and maybe what you don't need is a comprehensive high school. Maybe you need a series of spaces where kids – can move as they go through their high school experience out into the community. And that gave birth to an idea that IRA got started last year that's being implemented this year called Albemarle Tech where kids are coming to what essentially was a 45,000 square foot warehouse that was empty and has been rebuilt to serve three different purposes. One being offices for a um, Um, a a department for technology, another being a professional development center for the instructional programs for the system, and third, a small center environment as a startup where kids come there to work on
1: projects that they want to work on, and there's no No
2: classes, no classrooms.
1: Um, so uh, on that one, I just have to ask: So are the kids going to high school? Will they graduate? Do they get a degree? What What's gonna happen there? The
2: The trick is to this is, and and you know, this isn't doesn't spun out of thin air. There's there is evidence that you know this this kind of thing works. There
3: are some other places. There that are, are some other some places that.
2: that have done things and have done them over the last forty years, but the idea is that if a kid says he's going to do a project he's going to build a guitar for example as one student there is doing how do we fit the curriculum needs his content needs into that project so maybe building a guitar gets him three credits over the year
1: so one last question that sounds amazing and i bet that there are a lot of educators who would both love to work in an environment like that and help build an environment like that how do you get started, though? How do you how do you go to a district that has traditional schools and get started? So I'd love to hear one or two practical tips that you have.
2: I'll start before Pam will have a lot better, you know, more to say. But one of the things that Pam has always preached to us here was that You know, we have the big dream. We have the zero-based thinking of thing, but we start with the aim small, miss small.
1: Great. Love that phrase. Aim small, miss small.
2: So Albemarle Tech, while building, if you think of building a new facility and how much that would cost, what we did instead here was to lease old industrial space, do it as what's called a triple net lease, so the landlord built what we wanted within it, and we just spread that out over the lease the lease payments. Um, the, we co-located it with other facilities so it would have more support, so there's actually right now just one teacher for it um, that will expand, but so we did something that didn't cost very much the startup cost was almost nothing that is the startup cost of this new high school was less than a million dollars total wow we bought the furniture through commercial uh the commercial parts of things like wayfair and ikea and stuff so we're not buying the expensive grade school furniture we went with a program that made it and we said we would start very small, that we'd start with 25 children, you know, 25 students who wanted to do it. So we have the big dream, we think of how we're gonna transfer it, but first we're gonna say, let's develop proof of concept and have it work.
3: And, and that's been, a, you know, I'm a real believer in what I call, I, I laughingly have labeled it as, you know, just borrowing from Yelp, the app, that what we use is a Yelp model, and here's here's what I think is that first and foremost, an administrator has to be able to start from a belief system that saying yes to people who have great ideas is a great starting point for change. And so, you know, I always say to folks, if somebody comes to you with a good idea, you really got to get to yes on it. Because if that person walks out and you've said no, not only will they not ever come back with another idea, they're going to tell 10 other people who won't come back either. So sometimes you have to take a deep breath and say yeah, let's go with it. And you might need to shape it some. We we did that with this project and many others. But, you know, and so with our libraries, we started very small and we built some prototypes in terms of uh, trying some things out, like sound studio in a, a space, or putting a game design center in, or a student help desk, or changing up furniture. But we started small. And as we learned from those experiences, the next iteration of that was an improvement upon what we started with. That way we didn't roll something out to the whole system, whether it's a district or it could even be a school, and end up with a significant fail. Because as I say, if you have a significant fail as a superintendent, it's going to be five years before some other superintendent gets to come in and try to, to go to that next level. So you want to try to aim for your successes. Um, We also talk about that you have to engage teams, that if somebody comes to you with an idea that sounds pretty interesting and they can justify why that's gonna make a difference for kids. And keeping kids at the center is something that Betsy, I've said from the very get-go of everything that we do, you always have to ask the question, how's this gonna benefit young people? And most importantly, benefit young people who otherwise may not be getting opportunities. That's another part of that. So, but if that one person is the only person that does it, what you end up with are pockets of excellence. And so you have a great teacher who's, you know, implementing project-based learning in really powerful ways, and kids are out there doing things that are benefiting the community, maybe even the world, through their projects. And right next door is a teacher whose kids are not getting that experience. One group of kids gets to understand their voice matters, that they have agency, that they can even have influence beyond their classrooms. Other group of kids are studying the past tests.
1: Which sounds like it goes right back to your beginning point, which is you have to observe the world around yeah. you. So timeless learning, how imagination, observation, and zero-based thinking are changing our schools. Pam and Ira, thank you so much.
0: Betsy, thank you. Thank it's you, great Betsy. to be here with you today. This has been the Ed Surge On Air podcast. Be sure to check out our archive for all of the past episodes and subscribe to make sure you don't miss a new one. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young, and special thanks to Chris Satori. We'll be back next week with more on the future of education. Thanks for listening.